0: This sermon was preached by Ed Moore, head pastor of North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens. Ed is one of the founders of Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. North Shore Baptist Church has planted five churches since 2005. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.ns-bc.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please take your copy of the Scriptures and turn to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. 1 Peter, chapter 1. If you've been with us for the past two months, you know that we're working our way through the book of 1 Peter. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that we started to examine the reasons why Peter's original audience was commended for their rejoicing. Remember that joy is the fruit of the Spirit, but to rejoice is the command. Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is making note of how excellently these saints rejoiced. Notice what it says in verse 6. Not only did they rejoice, but they rejoiced greatly. In this you greatly rejoice. And then at the end of verse 8, notice that not only do they rejoice, but you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. These people were good at rejoicing. So Peter commends them, he encourages them, he pats them on the back as if to say, when it comes to expressing love for the Lord, you pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, you guys have really got it going on. Which for us, by way of application, begs the question... How in the world were they able to do it? Well, last week I told you that the text gives us four reasons why they were able to do it, and last week we were able to cover two of them. The first one was this, because they had their concentration upon the gospel. Look again in verse 6. It says, In this you greatly rejoice. Well, what does the word this refer to? Well, it refers to everything that was said previously in verses 3 through 5, and all of these are gospel blessings. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again or caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Glorious resurrection is the gospel because we are in Christ and because Christ lives, then we shall live forevermore. We are begotten again to a living hope in what way? Well, it says in verse 4, to, and here are the gospel blessings there, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time or at the second coming of Christ. So they were able to rejoice because they were concentrating on the gospel. Here's the second reason And we pointed this out last week, why they were able to rejoice exceedingly. And it's because they knew that the suffering which they were undergoing, which was in the form of persecution, they knew that the suffering which they were undergoing had a divine purpose and it had a glorious reward attached to it. In other words, well, let's read the verses. It says in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, or again, at the second coming of Jesus Christ. In other words, hey, we're being persecuted, and we're being persecuted severely, but it's not random, and it's not useless, it is designed by God in order to refine us. And so if we hang in there until the revelation of Jesus Christ, until Christ comes again, uh, these fiery trials, which are here for a little while, and even though they are grieving us, these fiery trials will, in the end, render a praiseworthy, honorable, glorious reward for us. And since the future reality of these rewards is of more value to us than the gold that is on this earth, which perishes, well, then we will rejoice. Now... I promised you last week that as we came into this week that I would give you an additional two reasons as to why they were able to rejoice so greatly, Um, but I did not tell the truth. It wasn't an intentional lie. I just uh, put more food on my plate than I was actually able to eat. I'm not going to be able to give you the additional two points this morning. In fact, I'm not even going to be able to give you one of them. I'm only going to be able to give you one half of one point this morning. You see, today I had hoped to finish the sermon that I started last week by noting the two additional reasons why they rejoiced as they did. I'm not going to get that far. In case you're keeping score or taking notes, the two additional reasons, according to the text, why they were able to rejoice as they did is uh, point number three, they had an undivided focus upon Jesus Christ, and number four, because they looked to future salvation rather than to current circumstances, but... We're not going to get to that today. In fact, we're only going to get to half of point number three, but let's pray before we get on to that half of the point. Father in heaven, we want to confess this day that we are in divine need of assistance from your spirit in order to praise you and to rejoice as we should. Uh, We are commanded to rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, but Lord, we are certainly in and of ourselves not capable of doing this. And so, Father, I want to thank you that you provided an example for us in the Pilgrims of the Dispersion who Peter was writing to. I want to thank you for the way that these people rejoiced even though they did not see you and even though they were under persecution. And, Lord, may we take inspiration from them. May we, by your grace, follow their example. But, Lord, even more than looking at what they did... Lord, may we be equipped by your Holy Spirit to rejoice greatly with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Lord, may specifically, Lord, that come about this day, because we have an undivided focus upon your Son, Jesus Christ, and may we specifically, in relation to him, Lord, love him more. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I actually get into the message, I want to say a few words about what happened after I finished preparing the message. After I finished preparing this message, I went back and I read over it, and I was tempted to rip it up and to scrap it all together and not preach it. Uh, In the flesh, I was tempted to not present it at all. The reason why I did not want to present the sermon after I'd finished preparing it is simply because of its simplicity. There is nothing, I mean not one word in this sermon which is controversial. There is nothing that is thought-provoking. There is nothing that is intellectually challenging. This, for most of you, will be 100% review. It is very foundational. It is the milk of the word. It is an elementary message. And yet, as I contemplated whether or not to start over, I had to examine my heart and say, why is it that you want to discard this sermon? And I came to the conclusion that my reluctance to present it was really just based upon sinful pride. Uh, Ironically, the simple message that I'm going to present today, the message about loving Christ, is in actuality the most profound, fundamentally essential information that we as Christians need to possess. But I want to tell you um, the struggle that I had before I actually decided to go ahead and deliver it. And there are two reasons for that. Number one is this. As you listen to the sermon today, you might be asking yourself, when is this guy going to get untracked? And when is he going to start stimulating our minds to consider something thought-provoking or new? And the answer is, never. It's not going to happen. Secondly, I don't want you to fall into the same sinful trap that I fell into while reviewing the sermon, and that is this. It is to say, because it is so simple, therefore it must be of limited value. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, let me argue that this sermon, which is exclusively about one subject, and that is loving Jesus Christ, this sermon, which is about loving Jesus Christ, although it may be simple, is so profound in its application that if we miss it, we are nowhere in our walk with the Lord, and I mean absolutely nowhere. So, having said that, I, to the glory of God, do not apologize for preaching an entire message on the subject of loving Jesus Christ, and I do not apologize for the simplicity of the message. In fact, I do not seek your forgiveness for having—I I do not seek your forgiveness for preaching it, but I do seek your forgiveness for not having preached it sooner. In fact, if I were to preach 100 sermons on what it means to love Jesus Christ, I wouldn't even begin to scratch the surface of it. So, having said that, I'll start off the message today by asking a question. The question is this, what is God primarily pleased with? What primarily pleases God the Father? Well, you know, Scripture lists many actions and attitudes which true believers in Christ exhibit which are pleasing to God. For example when Solomon was praying to the Lord and he was making his request and God said, I'll give you anything you want. And when Solomon said, give me understanding so that I can judge the people, it says in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 10, that the speech or the prayer pleased the Lord. So there are things that we can do as believers which are pleasing to the Lord, such as Solomon's request for wisdom. But we need to be very careful that we do not... Think in terms of our good works, freestanding as pleasing to the Lord. For the past several days, Alec Millen and his three children were visiting our home. If you've not met his son, Benjamin, three years old, you have really missed something because this child is off the charts in terms of cuteness. He He is the cutest human being that God has ever created. I gave Benjamin a little piece of candy and here's what he said to me. He said, God loves us when we give to other people, you know. (laughs) Now, as cute as that may be, and I agree with his point, we need to be very careful. And here's how. Listen closely. God is pleased with our actions, our generous gifts, our obedience, only when our works and our gifts are mediated through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, our freestanding good works are not pleasing to God in and of themselves. God, who is holy, is primarily pleased with His own Son, Jesus Christ, period. You remember at the baptism of Christ, when John the Baptist baptized Him, and God took it upon Himself in His own voice to thunder from heaven and say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I want you to know I'm pleased with my Son. You remember at the transfiguration on the mountain where Moses and Elijah from the Old Testament appeared with Jesus. And Jesus' glory was unveiled. And Peter, James, and John were invited to be there. And when, when Peter saw it, he said, I have an idea. Let's erect three booths and we'll have one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. God the Father quickly corrected Peter's misconception of putting all three of these individuals on the same plane. And he said, no, no. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Not Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, but Jesus, 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 only Jesus, period. This is what pleases the Lord. In Isaiah 64, 6, and you're familiar with this verse, it says, but we are all like an unclean thing. And all our unrighteousnesses, all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Now, I'm not going to take time, nor would I ever in mixed company explain what this means, but it's not good. But do you understand what the verse is saying? The verse means that the very best that we have to offer, I'm not talking about our sinful actions, I'm talking about our good actions, the very best that we have to offer God is not only unacceptable, but it is detestable. And I don't care what it is, whether it is volunteering to feed the homeless, or whether it is giving money to a church, or whether it's falling on a hand grenade, or whether it's raking your neighbor's leaves. Those acts, if not mediated through the work of Jesus Christ, are detestable to God. Detestable. God is not impressed. Your gift is rejected. You have not pleased the Lord. In fact, you have disgusted the Lord. The very best that we have to offer him is filthy rags. Go ahead and give it your best, but please know at the end of the day, God is not going to accept it. It is not good enough. And you say, why? Well, here's the reason why. Because God is holy. Uh, Let me explain what this means. Holy God is pleased with his holy son, Jesus Christ. God is the only one in the universe that is holy. You alone are holy. And God is holy and he associates with nothing or no one that is unholy. In fact, he intimately embraces only that which is holy. And so when Job asks the question in chapter 9 verse 2, how can a man be made righteous with God, that is a very profound question and here's the answer. He sent his holy son from heaven to earth to live a holy life and to completely fulfill his holy law and then to offer himself as a holy substitutionary sacrifice on the cross and to suffer holy wrath for or in place of unholy sinners like me so that my sins would be paid for in full. That can only be done through the one currency that God accepts, and that is blood or death, for the wages of sin is death. Or to put it another way, holy Jesus took the place of unholy me So that holy God can accept me into his family. And holy God does accept me into his family. But he does not do it because I in my actions am holy. Or I in my obedience am perfect because I am not. No, he only does it through the work of Jesus Christ. Holy Jesus lived and died in my place and offers me his holy life or record which I present to God. And because I am now in Christ by faith, I have trusted in Christ to be my Savior, because I am now in Christ, God the Father no longer views me as me, but he views me as righteous and he views me with the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, I am, as I am in Christ, as righteous in God's eyes as Christ himself. And then he is pleased with my acts of obedience. But he is not pleased with my acts of obedience which are freestanding. They must be mediated or brought through Jesus Christ. You see, the acts which I commit, which are good acts or righteous acts, they're unacceptable to God in and of themselves. But based upon the merit of these acts alone, they are filthy rags. But because I am in Christ... He is my mediator, my go-between, my representative, my lawyer, my advocate, my intercessor. Well, based upon that, then God is pleased. In short, God the Father is pleased with Jesus Christ, his Son. And only if we are in Christ is he pleased with us and our actions. Therefore, and it's all been building up to this point, it's, 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 it's extremely simple. Therefore, in order to be well-pleasing to God... Does it not make sense to focus as clearly as we can on Jesus Christ, seeing as how that's who God the Father is pleased with? Consider the words of Colossians chapter one, verses eighteen and nineteen. And He, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell. In other words, God has an agenda and His agenda is to put His Son, Jesus Christ, in the number one top position. The Father is pleased with Christ. The Father is interested in Christ. Oftentimes we will quote the verse in First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that says there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. In other words, there is one bridge, there is one go between, there is one way to get from us to God, and that is through Jesus. And we will use that verse exclusively for evangelism, speaking to those that are not converted, speaking to those that are not saved, and saying if you want to get from earth to heaven and not go to hell, you want to get to God the Father, there's one way to get there, and it is through Jesus Christ. And never truer words were said. And I want to say to you today, if you are not saved, if you are not born again, the only way that you can be saved is through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You're a sinner. You're not deserving of heaven. Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, went to the cross, died on that cross for sinners like you, like me, rose again, and whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's Jesus or nothing. And we use those verses, 1 Timothy 2.5 and John 14.6, to speak to unbelievers, and well, we should. However... Have you ever considered that the gospel is for believers as well? And those verses apply to believers as well. We who are in Christ also approach the Father, but the only way that we can approach the Father is through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. He continues to be our mediator. He continues to be the way, the truth, and the life. It is Jesus or nothing. That is the one-way street to God, and there is no other way we as Christians are not going to grow or see any movement in our growth, sanctification, if we are not focused upon Jesus Christ. So, I say all that to say that Jesus Christ is the delight of God the Father. But I also want to point out, secondly this morning, that Jesus Christ is the delight of the Holy Spirit and that it is the work of the Holy Spirit to exalt Jesus Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit is not to draw attention to himself, but the work of the Holy Spirit is to magnify Christ. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 16, 14, when he spoke of the Holy Spirit who would be poured out at Pentecost. Jesus said this, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Uh, The Holy Spirit had not yet been poured out and Jesus said, I'm going to tell you something about the Holy Spirit when he comes. When he comes, he has a job description. And his job description is not to speak of himself, but his job description is to point people to me. So when you go to a Holy Spirit revival or a Holy Ghost revival, which focuses and concentrates on the work of the Holy Spirit, that is, the gifts of the Spirit or the manifestations of the Spirit, and it is the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, please know that that is, by definition, a counterfeit revival. And the reason why is because if the Holy Spirit were truly at work, according to Jesus and according to Scripture, Jesus Christ would be the centerpiece and not the Holy Spirit. He will glorify me. So, does it then not logically follow that if it is the Father's design to make Jesus Christ preeminent, And if it is the Spirit's job to glorify the Son, should we then not be in agreement with the Father and the Spirit and make Jesus Christ our primary focus as well? In other words, are we going to come up with some other person or object for our concentration more worthy than that which the Father and the Spirit delight in, namely Jesus Christ? I don't think we're going to come up with a better answer than that. So, let's do what the Father does, let's do what the Spirit does, Let's make our focus Jesus Christ. And let's do what Peter's original audience did, is that they were able to make their focus Jesus Christ, and they did it in two ways. Love and faith. We're only going to be able to talk about love this morning. But again, look in verse 8. Whom having not seen, Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, there's the faith, You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now notice that twice in this verse, it's pointed out that these people were never physically in the presence of Jesus. They had never seen him, and they were not seeing him at the time. Yet it says, in spite of the fact that they did not see him, they loved him. And so I have to ask the question, must one see an individual in order to love them? The answer is no. On March 14, 1961, I was born. On that very same day, my mother buried her mother. Same day. You bury your mother, you get a baby. You're trading one for the other. I never laid eyes on my grandmother. Do I love her? Of course I love her. I've never met her, but I love her. I've heard stories about her. I've seen pictures of her. I look forward to seeing her one day in heaven. I do love her, but I've never met her. Well, these people, having never seen Christ, still loved him. So it is possible to love someone that we have not seen or met. Now, what I am about to tell you, and here's where the... Not to be redundant, but to be redundant, here's where the simplicity gets really simple. But this is not an oversimplification, it's just simple. And that's this. The secret to successful Christian living is to love Jesus Christ. The secret to successful Christian living is to love, to simply love Jesus Christ sincerely. If you can do that, then everything else will take care of itself. It's just that simple. And if you miss that, well then Paul says you're not even saved. In other words, if you don't love Jesus, then you are not a Christian. You are cursed or damned. Uh, Turn back, please, to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 16. Notice what it says in verse 22. Now, Paul is coming to the end of this book, speaking to the church that is by far the most gifted of all the churches that he's dealing with. And he really makes it simple at the end and says this, 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Uh, Let him be anathema, let him be damned, O Lord, come. What do you mean by that, Paul? Well, here's what he means. He means that if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. It is very simple. And so this idea of loving Jesus is very important. But I want to explain to you that just because a church has a lot of things that are going on that are good does not mean that they are in the right place. The church at Ephesus, according to Revelation chapter 2, had more going for it than we will ever have. But the Lord says this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. Yet I have one thing against you, that you have lost your first love. I mean, this is it. This is the centerpiece. You have love for Christ or you have nothing. But as I explain to you now what love for Christ is, I need to also explain what love for Christ is not. And by loving Christ, I do not mean that we discard theology and doctrine and scriptural knowledge. And just love Jesus, just however it feels. A few weeks ago I was listening to a pastor on the radio and I was shocked and dismayed as I listened to what he had to say. And here's what he said. We need to forget about doctrine, theology and interpretations of scripture and just love Jesus. I think I understand what he was attempting to say. I think he was attempting to say that sometimes our study of Scripture can get in the way of our love for Christ. But the way that he was saying it was very, very dangerous by saying that we need to forget about doctrine and interpretations of Scripture and theology. Loving Jesus properly is never detached from truth. In John 4:24, Jesus said that those that worship must worship in spirit and in truth. We are to love God with all of our minds, Mark chapter 12, verse 30. Loving Christ is not exclusively an emotion or a self-styled expression which we invent. No, he himself has declared or revealed in his word who he is and he has prescribed in his word how he wishes to be loved. And so, loving Christ is never divorced from loving and knowing his word. Loving and knowing his word are essential elements which aid us in our love of Christ. And for the Christian that is not growing in their knowledge of the word, they, quite simply, are not loving Christ properly. In order to love Christ properly, it must be in accordance with his word. And therefore, doctrine and theology and deep scriptural knowledge are not enemies, but they are aids which give us ability to love Christ more fully. Here's the second thing that loving Christ is not. There are those that say, you know what? I don't need the church. Just let me love Jesus. In fact, I can do it at home. Uh, Loving him, does it not make sense, would also include doing it in the context which he himself has prescribed, which is the local church. The person who says, I don't need the local church, I just want to love Jesus. but Really, they're making very little sense. Uh, Scripturally, they're making very little sense because the scripture says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Ephesians 5.25, does it not stand to reason that we also should love the church? And in Matthew 16.18, Jesus said, I will build my church. And in 1 Timothy 3.15, it says that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. And in Revelation chapter 21, verse 9, the church is said to be what? The bride of Christ. If someone comes up to me and says, you know what, Ed, I like you. In fact, I love you. In fact, I'm all about you. I am very pleased with you. I like you. But Anna? Ah, I'm not too crazy about her. What you have just said to me is that you don't like me. Anna is the bride of Ed. The church is the bride of Christ. To say that you love Christ, but you don't love his church, is a contradiction. So we can't love Christ apart from his word. We can't love Christ apart from his church. But notice, loving Christ can't be done apart from obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 15. And the question was asked, and I think it's a very profound question: Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you do not do the things that I say? In First John five three, it says, "For this is love." Now, do you not think that God Himself would know what love is, since love is of God? And God says in First John five three, "For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments." And so the person who is living in habitual, unrepentant rebellion and sin may say that they love Jesus, but according to God, they really don't. Uh, They may claim that they do, and they may even sincerely mean that they do, but the one who determines whether or not they actually love him and the one who knows all things knows and tells us that they do not. If anyone says that he loves God but does not keep his commandments, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. And so you can't love Christ apart from his word, apart from his church, and apart from his commands. However, I said all that to say this, it is very possible to study the word of God to the point where you are actually considered a Bible scholar. And it is very possible to join a local church and to be committed to the ministry and even get perfect attendance pins. And it is very possible to be Pharisee-like and to the best of your ability, strive to keep his command- commandments with an outward conformity to his laws. It's possible to study the Bible, join a church, and do the best you can to obey the Bible and at the same time, have absolutely no love for Jesus Christ in your heart at all. Turn again to the last verse in the book of Ephesians. Notice what? What he says, chapter 6, verse 24 Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. It is possible to do all of these religious acts and have no affection for Jesus. If, however, one does have a sincere and genuine admiration for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, well, it is going to manifest itself in a hunger for His Word, and there will be love for the brethren, a commitment to the Bride of Christ, which is the Church, and one will delight to keep His commandments. But let's make sure that we have the horse in front of the cart. So I ask you, by way of application this morning, do you study His Word to learn as much doctrine and theology as you can just because you're smart and you like to study or because you want people to think you're smart or because you like debate. Uh, Let me tell you one of the greatest breeding grounds for sinful pride in intelligence in the Word. It's a seminary. You go there, you do nothing all day but study the Bible and some people are smarter than others, and you can prove that you are smarter simply by studying a little bit more, and if you're a little bit more articulate. But I'll tell you, knowing the Word in and of itself does not, by definition, generate love for Christ. Why are you studying the Word? Do you come to church and involve yourself in the church Commit yourself to the church because you love the brethren and the brethren belong to Christ. And hereby we know that we've passed from life unto death because we love the brethren. Are you here loving the brethren because of a love for Christ? Or do you come to church because, well, it's kind of like cheers. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. You know, you need a sense of community. We live in a very lonely city where people are disconnected and you can come here and people will, generally speaking, be nice to you. And so you want to come somewhere, kind of like a club. You know, we'll just kind of, come on people now, smile on your brother, everybody get together. Is this is this, is this how you view church? Is it love for Christ? Or is it just kind of a, a place where you go where you feel a sense of belonging? Do you love him and obey his commandments because he loved you or... Do you try to keep his commandments in hopes that one day he will love you? Are you trying to earn his love? You see the answer is we love him because he first loved us, 1 John 4:19. And we love him because he laid down his life for us. For greater love knows no man than this, but that a man should lay down his life for his friends, John 15:13. And we love him, here we go, this is, this is where the, 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 the rubber is actually going to meet the road this morning. We, meet, we love him because he has given us a love for himself through the Holy Spirit. We who love Christ, and there are people here today who do love Christ. We who love Christ do so. Because he generated that love in us for him. We did not generate it on our own. Jesus said these words to his enemies in John 8:42, If God were your father, you would love me. Now, that seems very simple on the surface, and it is. But, but be careful that you don't misread that. God doesn't become your father when and if you love Christ. No, it's the other way around. You love Christ because God is your father. Here's a verse that perhaps you've never thought of in this way. Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love. You know what that means, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love. But maybe there are a couple of ways that you haven't thought about this verse. That word love does not just mean love for our enemies and love for our brethren and love for believers. But it's also love for Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is love for one another, but it is also love for Him. And notice that the verse says that it is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not something that we generated, but it was generated through the Holy Spirit. So, I ask you the question today, do you love Christ? And if the answer is yes, then I say amen. But I want you to know, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that the reason why you love him is because he has given you that love by the Holy Spirit. Romans five: 5 the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. You see, in this Bible, we are commanded to love Christ. But apart from God's work in our hearts, we are not capable of loving Christ. In fact, I'm going to say something very gruesome and very ugly. I'm going to argue that not only are we by nature incapable of loving Christ, but I would say unequivocally that apart from the grace of God working in our hearts, we as depraved sinners actually hate Christ. Now, we would never come out and say that. If you were to ask a person, do you hate Christ? They, They wouldn't say that. But if you think about it, it's true. Uh, The person without the Spirit of God has an aversion to hearing his name. That's why when you take the name of Jesus with you, it's either going to be mocked or it's going to be scorned or the subject is going to change very quickly. People, by and large, are indifferent about Muhammad and Buddha. But you bring up the name of Jesus, you're going to get people angry. Why? Because there is a natural... Aversion, the natural man is at enmity with God. There is a fixed hatred there. We are repulsed by the demands of Jesus. We wish that he had not said the things that he said. We wish that we could do the things that we could do. We want to look into the face of Christ and say, I'm going my own way, I'm going to be my own boss, and you can't tell me what to do. No, by nature we hate him. We are indifferent to his sacrifice, and probably we just despise him altogether. Therefore, I say that to say this, that if you actually affectionately love Jesus Christ, and you must love him in order to be saved, if you actually love Jesus Christ, then you need to thank God for giving you that love, for if God had not given you that love, then you would by nature not love him. And I want to say this as well, that if you have that love, it will cause you to rejoice and to rejoice greatly with great joy, inexpressible and full of glory. And as I said earlier, it will literally take care of every spiritual problem that you have. It is the key to successful Christian living. Simply this, sanctification will be worked out as we love Jesus Christ and if that's in its proper place at the top of everything then everything else will fall into place and if it is not in its proper place then nothing and i mean absolutely nothing will be in place or in perspective so again i make no apologies for the simplicity of the message today the key is loving christ first peter chapter 1 8 peter is not commanding them to do anything In fact, he's commending them. He is not chastening them for not loving Christ well enough. He's impressed that they do love Christ, even though they're being persecuted and even though they have not seen him. And so as I close the message today, I just want to say that as we perceive in the next few moments of the message, I am not chastising you for having a weak love for Christ. Uh, I, I am certainly not trying to guilt you in what I am about to say into loving love Christ. Did you ever, you probably didn't, but did you ever go on a date with someone because you felt guilty or because you felt sorry for them? Or better yet, did anybody ever go on a date with you because they felt guilty or they felt <laughs> sorrow? You know, those romances do not last. And if I speak to you today about Christ and I say, you know, he has loved us so much and you should love him. And you say, you know, I really feel guilty about that. You're right. I really should love him. I don't love him the way that I do. Let me tell you, that romance with Christ is not going to last. You don't guilt someone into loving the Lord. Okay? So what I'm about to say is not intended to, 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 to chasten you. I'm just going to make one observation and then I'm going to make two very brief Simple applications. And here's the observation. If we cannot passionately, sincerely love someone who died in our place, if we cannot passionately, sincerely love someone who died in our place, then we must admit that we are exceedingly selfish, depraved sinners and in need of abundant grace. That there is something seriously wrong with us. You know what always astonishes and shocks and disgusts and really amazes me is when I see some sort of a documentary about a prisoner. And they'll show the prisoner in his cell and they'll interview the prisoner and then they'll go through the the, the facts of the case as they were presented in court and they will take a look at the family of the prisoner and they will they will give you some sort of information about the prisoner's mother who loved her son and went to bat for her son, and lost her house trying to defend her son, and yet this mother continues to love this son, and yet you see the son sitting in his cell, unmoved, unbroken, unrepentant, hard, and cold. And I look at that and I say, are you stinking kidding me? That your mother has done that much for you, how can you sit there that hard-hearted? But you know, when I think of my Lord Jesus Christ, he didn't put his house up to a bail bondsman for me. He hung upon a cross for me. He bore the wrath of God for me. He gave his life for me. And he continues to love me and continues to patiently tolerate me regardless of the wretch that I continue to be. And when I contemplate the relative, shallow, disproportionate depth of my love for him, I have to come to the conclusion that I am infinitely more vile than the worst criminal in Rikers Island. In other words, it just doesn't make sense. One would think that if we were good people, and we had a knowledge of and believed that Jesus died for us, that our response to that would be an overabundant, unending, ceaseless, demonstrative love for him. But when we have trouble generating love for one who died for us, does that not tell you how hopeless we are? And so with that observation, let me make two applications. The first application is this. Our lack of love must drive us to the cross and it must cause us to rely upon the grace of God. We need the gospel to love Christ and to glorify God. Because the truth of the matter is your pastor simply doesn't love Christ as he should. Your pastor doesn't love Christ enough. And my lack of love for Christ is sinful. So now, what do I do? Well, basically, I come to the end of myself, as the Apostle Paul did, and I say, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And you see, here's the irony. The deliverance, the answer, the remedy, the solution, is Christ and the cross. The same Christ whom we fail to love Is the only one who can forgive us and restore us and give us rest and give us peace. See, you're not going to get to the point where you love Christ as much as he deserves. Now, you should try. Oh, you should try with all of your might. But do you realize that you don't love the Lord enough? So what do you do about that? Well, you've got two options. You either beat yourself up, which is a form of pride, which is unacceptable to God, or you go straight back to the place where you originally received your forgiveness and you say, Jesus, not only do I want you to forgive me for all of the sins that I've committed and that have caused me to be your enemy, but Lord Jesus, will you please forgive me that even while I am in the state of being your friend, I don't love you the way that I should. Oh Jesus, may your grace and may your cross forgive me. You see, sometimes when we do a heart examination, really, it has to drive us to the cross. And it has to drive us to the cross, not to go there in self-pity or to go to the cross in despair, but to go back to the cross and when we've been there and we've admitted to him that we don't love him as much as we should, but for him to say, nevertheless, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, I still love you, then our response is, Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That your grace is so deep that it forgives my unloving, wretched heart. I think this is what John Wesley had in mind when he wrote, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. You know, I lived about 40 years. I didn't know what that ever meant. You know what that means? He says, I've got one tongue now and I would like a thousand of them so that I can use them to sing my great Redeemer's praise all right, you're only going to get one tongue, John. But you know what? Some of you, you don't even use the one tongue that you've got to praise him. What in the world would you do with 999 more? Our lack of love for Christ has to drive us to the cross, and that has to drive us just to rest and say thank you. Thank you. Here's the second point of application. Before I give it, let me just say a word about this one word I'm going to use in this point, and it's the word pray. The word pray in Christian circles has become so trite and meaningless that we just kind of say it without thinking. We part ways with one another. All right, we'll see you later. We'll be praying for you. Really? You know, we say we're going to pray for people, but do we actually pray? And when I give this point of application, and the point of application is going to be simply to pray, is it, like the rest of the sermon, just going to be too simple? Uh, Give me something to do. Give me a puzzle to solve. Give me a riddle. Uh, Give me a hoop to jump over. No, it's just simply pray. But I, I do really mean pray. Here's the application point. Pray to God and ask Him to give you more love for Christ. We said earlier that the fruit of the Spirit is love. 1 John 4, 7 says that love is of God. In other words, uh, the, 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 the storehouse of the love that we have comes from God. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God. How do we love? Well, we get it from God. Well, how do we get it? Well, we ask for it. You have not because you ask not. And so my prayer is this. Give me that love. God, I don't love your son the way that I should. I don't love your son the way that he deserves to be loved. But God, please give me that love. Let me give you two illustrations of how this has worked itself out in my life in the last year. A little less than a year ago, it came to my attention that there was someone that I really did not like. And I not only didn't like this person, I didn't love this person. Now, the person is not here today, okay? I'm looking out at all of you. Let me make sure. Okay, I love everybody here. Great. All right. But this person was a person that... relentlessly came after me over many years and sinful me. I didn't like this person and I didn't love this person. Now, I would never come out and say that I didn't love the person. You know, questions would be asked, well, you know, the way you talk about this person, it doesn't seem like you love them very much. Well, of course I love them. I'm a Christian. I love everybody. But the truth of the matter is I didn't love this person. Until I was confronted by a brother about this, of just how sinful and how wrong it was for me. But you know, as I contemplated my relationship with this person and my demeanor toward them, I had to come to the conclusion that I did not possess the ability to love this person at all, like it was not within me. And so here's what I did. I got my pen out and I went to my notebook where I wrote down down my prayer request and I wrote the person's name and I wrote, God, would you please give me a love for this person? And I began to pray for that person every day and I began to pray for myself every day that God would give me a love for that person. And you know, the weirdest, I mean, inexplicable, wacky, strangest thing began to happen to me that these feelings of animosity which I once had began not only to dissipate, but they began to evaporate and they went away altogether. And I didn't just get to the point where I felt neutral about this individual, but doggone it, I began to like this individual and to become interested in this individual's well-being. And may I say, I even began to, and today, to the glory of God, I love this individual. How did that come about? There Ain't no stinking way that Ed Moore generated that from his wicked heart. That was done as an act of grace by God through prayer in God giving me a love for a person that I considered to be my enemy. Second illustration. Again, I don't know why. I cannot explain to you why. All I know is that it happened. When I found out that I was going to be going to Belarus the former Soviet Union, in April, I began to pray for the people there, and one of the things that I began to pray for them is that God would give me an intense love for them. Now, I've been to dozens, maybe even hundreds of churches. I have met Christians from all over the world. But for some reason, and I cannot explain it apart from the grace of God and these prayers that God began to melt my heart and move my heart and incline my heart and knit my heart to these people that I had never met before. All I had was a photograph of them. And it was embarrassing when I got to Belarus. In case you don't know this, Russians aren't the most emotional people in the world. (laughs) They walk in the church or the Bible study, and I begin to see them, and all of a sudden, it's like a gusher. It's like the tears begin to flow, and I can't fight them back. And it's really embarrassing. But what is this grown, what is this American doing? He's never been here before. And I see these people, I'm just, I love you so much, man. I just love you. And it was a sincere love. It wasn't just emotion, but it was a sincere love. Where did that love come from? It came from God. So if God would be pleased to grant a prayer request that would cause me to have a deep love for one who was my enemy and to have a deep love for people that I had never met before, does it not stand to reason that God, who is very glorified in His Son, would be delighted to give us a love for His Son? There's a hymn that we... Many hymns in our hymn book that we don't sing. One that perhaps we should learn and begin to sing. It's hymn number 247. And the hymn writer writes, More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. Now, this is a prayer. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This now my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. What is this hymn writer saying? It's She's saying... I don't love you as much as I should and I need to love you more. So, Lord, would you give me this love? And I want to say that if God would be pleased to give us all a love for his son, this church literally would turn the world upside down. If we loved Jesus Christ with all of our hearts as we should, we as a church did that, this room would not be able to contain the seats of the people that would come here and that would be drawn to that. What we really we don't need really programs or strategies or whatever. We simply, at the end of the day, just need to love Christ. And we're so wicked, we're not capable of doing it on our own. Think of the person or the thing that you love most in life and then think of the time in life when you love them the most and now try to imagine all of us experiencing that same affection and love for Christ. It's incomprehensible what would happen. Therefore, I say to you, pray that God, by the power of the Spirit, would give you a deep-seated love for His Son. In closing, let me reiterate something I said before I brought these two application points. The one application point was this, that we need to what? that we need to go to the cross and thank God for the gospel. It forgives us for our lack of love. And secondly, we need to pray and ask God to give us that love. But if you are a sensitive soul, and as you have listened to this, you have slipped into uh, guilt, and you say, oh man, I don't love Christ the way that you And you are currently beating yourself up, and you weren't listening. Okay? We go to the, cro- we go to the cross, and we find deliverance. We go to our Father who remembers that we are dust. He knows our frame and he knows our limitations. We need to approach this joyfully. And so in just a moment, we're going to sing the song, Oh, How I Love Jesus. You might be hesitant to sing because you don't love him as much as you should, but you do love him. And if you do love him, that love has been given to you by God. And so as we stand and sing that hymn, sing it with rejoicing. Don't sing it in a cloud of guilt. Father in heaven, I just want to thank you that you loved us and that you demonstrated that love by sending your son to die for us. And now, Lord, I would just pray that we would reciprocate and that out of gratitude, not to earn anything, but out of gratitude, Lord, we would, and with true affection, love your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, give us that love which we do not now possess and cause us, Lord, to express that love, uh, to express that love in our song, uh, to express it in our gifts, to express it with our lives, Lord, to uh, simply express it in prayer. Lord, please give us more love for Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners, or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.